Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. Now it's time to turn to the Scriptures. As uh, Mindy said earlier, we are starting a new series today. Through the year, we have been talking about practices of the Christian faith different ways that we engage with our faith. So we started in the fall talking about Scripture and engaging with the Scriptures. Uh, And then at the beginning of the year, we talked about prayer. We took a short break from our series on practices, our year-long series on practices, um, and now we're getting back to uh, the practices of the faith. And today, we're going to start the conversation around giving and generosity, what God expects from us, what He's called us to, and the benefits of following Jesus in obedience in generosity. And so uh, that's where we start today, looking at the radical call of Jesus uh, to his disciples in Luke chapter 9, going into chapter 10. Uh, And so Terry will come and read the scripture for us, and then we'll open it together. Good morning. When the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of himself And on the way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But they did not welcome him because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. As they were traveling on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Then he said to another, follow me. Lord, he said, first let me go bury my father. But he told him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, and he sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. He told them, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers to his harvest. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Jerry. Anybody really into the Marvel Universe? Anybody really into Marvel movies? All right, yeah, so, some of us. If you're not, you're at least aware of them. Maybe you didn't know they were called Marvel, but starting with Iron Man way back when and all the way through all of the Marvel Cinematic Universe stories, um, have you ever noticed that every single plot's the exact same? Every superhero movie plot is exactly the same. The superhero, it it may be an origin story. You're learning how the hero got their powers and abilities. And then eventually some bad guy is going to come on the scene. And their job is to kick the bad guy's butt and save the world. That is exactly the theme every single time. The only thing that changes are the heroes themselves or the villains, the powers, and the way that they do the thing that they're trying to do. But every single time, villain shows up and they're just trying to save the world. There's only one plot line to a superhero story. And... We could deride that. We could be like, well, man, couldn't they get a little more innovative? Couldn't they get a little bit more 
creative here? Why are we always doing the same plot over and over? But, but the fact is that throughout history, the best stories are only one story. The best stories are all about only one thing. And I'm going to show my nerdiness here um, because I've really the only books I really enjoy reading are fantasy and, and science fiction books. So, But think about the Lord of the Rings for a minute. What are the Lord of the Rings? What's the Lord of the Rings about? It's about the ring. It's about the one ring and trying to get that one ring to Mount Doom to destroy it, to overcome the powers of evil, to overcome Sauron. Right? Think about Harry Potter. What's Harry Potter about? Harry Potter is about defeating Voldemort. That's it. That's the whole thing is about beating Voldemort. And there's a lot of side plots. There's a lot of, of character development that's happening. But really, once Voldemort's defeated, the story's over. It's done. Think about the Chronicles of Narnia. What are the Chronicles of Narnia about? Aslan. And Aslan coming. When is Aslan going to show up? And how is he going to make things right? Things are broken. Things are messed up. Somewhere in the story, Aslan's going to show up, and he's going to make things right. One of my favorite books that you may have never read is Pillars of the Earth by Ken Follett. The Pillars of the Earth is a tome. It is a very thick, big book. Um, and it's a multi-generational story set in medieval England and France. Um, but there's only one real solid central character to the whole book, Pillars of the Earth, and that is a cathedral in England. The cathedral is the central point of that whole story, and it spans generations and years and years and years, this story does. But it's really all about this cathedral, because the best stories are about one thing, and this reflects a truth of human life that I think we lose in American life, which is you can only have one priority. Multitasking is a lie and a myth. Multiple priorities is a myth. In fact, the word itself can't even technically be used plural because priority itself means most important. You can't have three most important things. You can only have one. And at the end of the day, I think it's because human beings, the, the way that we're built, at the end of the day, we can really only give our lives fully and wholly to one thing. And I think that's built into our nature. I think it's built into who we are from the very, very beginning. You see, God created human beings for the sole purpose of having relationship with them. We were made for God. We were made for relationship with God. Our relationships with one, another's, with one another are reflections and extensions of our relationship with God. Our relationship with the world is only possible because we're made in the image of God to rule over the world as God would have us do. Everything about us is built for relationship with God, and then from that relationship, everything else flows. And we only work best when we're actually in that relationship with God. Human beings only function best when we are actually in whole relationship with our God and everything else about us flows out of that relationship, when in fact our one priority is our relationship with God. Now, I realize that for some of us that feels really weird and icky and like I don't really want to touch that because we want to say, no, 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 my kids are a priority, my job's a priority, my family's a priority, all of these other things are priorities as well. And so it feels like to say, I can only really have one priority in life, is to downplay all of those other things. Until we understand 
that only being in right relationship with God puts me in right relationship with everybody and everything else in my world. That in fact, if I prioritize my children above my relationship with God, I am doing my children a disservice. I'm actually not loving them the way God created them to be loved and cared for. If I prioritize you above my relationship with God, I am not actually loving you well. I'm putting you in a place that you were not designed to occupy. This is why codependent relationships are so destructive, because we're putting the other person, the person we're codependent with, into the position of God that they were never meant to occupy. And we put a weight on their shoulders they weren't meant to bear. It's only when you and I are in a proper relationship with our God that everything else works the way that it's supposed to, because we were made for this one priority, for this one most important thing, to be in relationship with our God. So when Jesus comes on the scene and starts making claims to be this God, he starts saying things that are absolutely nuts. He starts saying things that are absolutely arrogant if he isn't actually the God that we were designed to be in relationship with. And that's what we see happening here today. So we're here in the end of Luke chapter 9. Up to this point, Jesus has been traveling, he's been teaching, he's been assembling his disciples, he has sent out the 12 apostles on one mission to go out and to preach the good news, and at the end of our passage here, he'll send out the 72. But this is a pivotal passage in the Gospel of Luke. This is the point where Jesus is moving from his general ministry, where he's building a following and he's teaching the basics of the kingdom of God, to now, right at the beginning of our passage, we read that Jesus is determined to go to Jerusalem. In the Greek, it reads, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. Now, that's a very intentional phrase. Throughout the Bible, that phrase will be used in the Old Testament and then in Greek as well in the New Testament, where to set your face to do something is to be bound and determined to get there. Jesus is now resolutely turning himself toward Jerusalem and the end of his life. We know what's going to happen in Jerusalem, right? If you've been around the church at all for a long time, if you know the story of Jesus, you know when he makes that final trek to Jerusalem what's going to happen. And Jesus knows what he's going for. And so for the next, like, eight chapters, Jesus is just kind of traveling around. But all of those eight chapters are controlled by this verse that says Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. His mission is getting urgent now. This is no longer about teaching his disciples the basics of following him. It's not no longer about teaching his disciples the basics of who he is and helping them to understand. Now, you're on his train or you are not. He's not going to be gathering a whole bunch of new people and training them. His closest disciples and apostles have been walking with him for years now. They are trained. They have been taught. He thinks they're, they're ready for the mission once he's gone from them. And so he sets his mind and his face toward Jerusalem. And his mission is urgent. He's going to the cross. This is the final section. And it's crazy. If you read the next seven chapters or so, uh, there's, Luke just fills it with tons of teaching. Tons of teaching. And it's, it's almost as though he's tripping over himself to get all this stuff out. Because he's got to get in all this important stuff before the end. 
In Luke's gospel, these seven chapters make up like the final words of Jesus, the final teaching of Jesus. Like all the stuff that you really got to know before Jesus is gone is packed in. So before we've been reading stories of Jesus healing people and stories of Jesus traveling, and there has been periods of teaching, but we've seen more of what Jesus is doing. From this point on, we'll hear much more of what Jesus is saying. Because Luke wants to make sure we get it all in before the cross. And he's, he's putting an urgency on Jesus' mission now. So as we turn to the next, the next pieces, to these, these three people who Jesus will talk to about following him, you have to remember that. That Jesus' mission is urgent now. He's in the final stages He's not bringing on new people that he has to kind of build up from being spiritual babies. He's walking with his most trained and his most mature disciples toward the cross. And so then we turn. So Jesus is on this urgent mission to get to Jerusalem. He's set his face. He's determined to go now to the cross And we read that as Jesus is traveling, he's trying to get to Jerusalem, he goes through Samaria. Now, if you've been around the church any amount of time, you've heard of Samaria. Samaria is this region that exists north of Judea. So there's Jerusalem is the capital of Judea. Judea is this region around Jerusalem. It's very small. Above that, north of that, is Samaria. And then above that, you've got Galilee, where Jesus is from and where almost all of his closest disciples are from, because it's the primary place he's been traveling and teaching. It's where his home is. It's where the apostles' homes are, right around the top of the Sea of Galilee, the city of Capernaum and over to the Bethsaida, right at the top. So that's the area Jesus has been. Now, when he goes down to Jerusalem, he could go around the Sea of Galilee and down south and then come across like some would if they were trying to avoid Samaria, or he can go down straight through Samaria to Jerusalem. Now, the problem with Samaria is that it's made up of a bunch of half-Jews. At least, that's how the pure people see it. That's how the religious Jewish folks in Jerusalem see Samaria. They're a bunch of half-Jews. So here's what happens. Back in 586 B.C., we're going, we're going back now, like we're going back 600 years, Back in 586 BC, the Babylonian Empire came in and they besieged Jerusalem and they took over Judea. And when they did that, they exported all the most important people. Only your peasants were left. They didn't export all of the people out of Judea. They didn't empty the land. They just took out the most important folks. Well, a whole bunch of other people are left. And these are not the most religious people. You can't think of every Jewish person in the Old Testament as like hyper-religious. That's just not culturally the way it was. And so they're left in the land, and they start intermarrying with people from other ethnicities, other groups, other nations. And so 70 or so years later, when the ruler of Babylon, the ruler of the Persian Empire now, Cyrus, says, hey, uh, you Jewish people, you can go back to your homeland. We'll help you rebuild your temple. We'll set you up. When the people get back to Judea, when they get back to their homeland, they find a whole bunch of what they consider half-Jews. People who have intermarried with other people and other ethnicities and other nations. Which is something that their law explicitly said you do not do. You cannot intermarry with non-Jewish people. 
And so when the faithful Jews who were in exile get back to their homeland, they find a bunch of people who have, according to them, have broken the law. And these are the ancestors of the Samaritans. This is the area of Samaria. Now, this area was in trouble long before the besieging of Jerusalem because back in 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire had taken over the northern part and taken all the people away. So they were already that way. And then you have the exile of Judea, and it only gets worse. And so now you have this region of people who the faithful in Jerusalem and and many of those who are faithful to the temple and to Judaism as they understand it, they see them as heretics. These people worship in a different place. They only recognize the first five books of Moses. They don't recognize the rest of the Old Testament. They have their own practices and their own way of following Yahweh, their own way of following God. And so there's, there's enmity between these people. They hate each other. And we see that in the way James and John respond to Jesus. They're traveling through Samaria, and Jesus sends an advanced group ahead to this town to try and make arrangements for them to stay somewhere. And this, the town won't let them do that. The Samaritan people in this town are like, no, you guys are Jews going to Jerusalem. You hate us. We're not going to let you stay in our town. And so James and John, the sons of thunder, are like, yo, Jesus, let us just call down fire. Can we just destroy this town? And at that point, you go, James, John, have you, like, listened to Jesus at all? Do, do, you, do you know who, who this guy is? They think they're perfectly righteous. <laughs> and Jesus is like, no, boys, that's not what we're going to do. We'll just find another town. It's fine. Okay, boys? Get off your high horse. Let's just go to the next town. So they continue traveling. And then we read, as they're traveling, Jesus has these encounters with three people. The first one approaches Jesus and says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus responds, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And then Jesus calls on another guy, and he says, follow me. And the guy responds, Lord, First, let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. And another one said to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So these three responses of Jesus that seem harsh. And they seem hard, right? Like these, these people are coming to Jesus or Jesus is calling them. And instead of being like, yeah, come on with me. Bye, yeah, go say goodbye to your folks. No big deal. Come and hang out with me. Right? Instead of being the like soft, fluffy Jesus that a lot of us imagine, Jesus says some harsh things. This first guy says, I'll follow you wherever. And Jesus is like, by the way, if you follow me, you're going to be sleeping in the dirt with a rock for your pillow. So just, just beware There's no comfort in following me. And so that's the first of our points. This person comes and says, Jesus, I'll follow you. And Jesus wants him to know, you are not guaranteed comfort following me. And to you and me now, Jesus says, you are not guaranteed comfort. If you came to Jesus under the presupposition that following him would mean you get what you want, 
And that he will fulfill your desires. And he will give you everything that you ask for and make your life easy and comfortable and wealthy to show off his goodness. Then you have come under a lie. Jesus says to us who would follow him, there is no guarantee of comfort on this road. We are not guaranteed or entitled comfort in following him. Jesus laid his head on the ground. He had no den to call home. We dare not come to Jesus seeking a comfortable and easy life. We're not guaranteed that. And this is a theme that Jesus will pick up over and over and over again in the teaching to come as he heads toward the cross. In fact, there are some ways in which Jesus' teaching, as he approaches Jerusalem and the cross, gets harder and harder as he gets closer and closer to the cross. Jesus will say in just a few short chapters, if you haven't given up everything, you're not worthy of following me. And it's easy to read these things as hyperbole. It's easy to read these things as though, oh, well, Jesus is just, he's just saying that he has to be more important to you than all this other stuff, but you can still keep all this stuff as a priority. And I think Jesus is teaching us exactly what I said at the beginning, which is you can't have more than one priority. And Jesus takes priority over everything. Jesus is far more important than our comfort. Jesus is far more important than our living comfortable lives. And we live in a world and society that says, if something causes you discomfort, you should cut it out of your life. If you're living in any way that makes you uncomfortable, you should change whatever the circumstances are to make yourself more comfortable. If you're uncomfortable with anything in your life, that is wrong, and you need to live in the way that is most comfortable for you. And Jesus is standing here saying, no, I am calling you to Discomfort. Discomfort with your sin. Discomfort with the rebellion that leads you away from God. Discomfort with your own ambition. Discomfort with the things you would choose apart from me. Because Jesus is far more important than our comfort. And his mission is far more important than our comfort. We cannot hold on to our comfort and follow Jesus. He must take the priority. And then to this next person, who Jesus actually calls on. This one, this one feels particularly harsh, because this guy didn't come to Jesus. Jesus calls on him. Jesus says, follow me. Lord, he said, First, let me go bury my father. Now, this whole episode here implies that the father's not dead yet. If the father was dead, then this guy would be in a position of mourning where he wouldn't be out in society for at least seven days. And then after that, he's got a period of mourning and he's got all kinds of things he's supposed to do, especially as the son of uh, someone who's died. He's got all these obligations that he's got to fulfill. So the implication is that his father's not dead yet. 
But maybe he's dying, maybe he's older, maybe the son is saying, let me get my inheritance. There have been many ways of reading this. Here's the important thing to know. In this world, in this time and place, as the eldest son of a family, if your father died, then your obligation to take care of him, to take care of his matters, to see things finished up, your obligation to set the funeral arrangements and make everything right and to observe the mourning period, your obligation to your dead father took precedent over absolutely everything. You couldn't be compelled to go to temple. You couldn't be, even if it was a feast time, you were exempt from having to go to some of the feasts of Israel that the law commands you to go to if you have to bury your father. Burying your father, if you're the oldest son of a family, is the most important thing when it happens. Nothing else in your life is supposed to take priority over burying your father when he dies. And so what Jesus is getting at here is the most important thing in your life right at this moment. The absolute most important thing that matters to you at this moment, the thing that the law says is good for you to do and that exempts you from all the obligations, all the religious obligations you were supposed to be in, even that is not as important as following me. I take priority over your family obligations. I take priority over anything else you've ever been told is important in your life. Following Jesus is more important than absolutely anything else anyone would lay on you. Absolutely any other obligation that you have undertaken. There's nothing that supersedes following Jesus. Even obedience to the law. And then finally, we see this last person. This last person comes to Jesus and says, I will follow you, Lord. Right, so we're already, we're in positive ground right here. We're in positive territory. This person says, I want to follow you, but first, let me go say bye to my family. And this one feels the most harsh. Jesus says, no one who's put their hand to the plow and looks back is worthy. Oh, the guy was just asking to say goodbye to his family. Now, there's an important Old Testament background here you may not be aware of. Back in 1 Kings 19, you have the prophet Elijah, the most important prophet in the history of Israel. When Jesus goes up on a mountain and he is transfigured and figures from the Old Testament show up, who is it? Moses and Elijah. Elijah represents all of the prophets of God, in the same way that Moses represents all the law of God. And so in 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah needs to choose a successor as a prophet. God has told Elijah, I'm going to take you into heaven. I'm going to take you away. And I'm going to tell you who is to follow after you. And so Elijah is out and he's, going, he's on this walk and there's this guy, Elisha. It's get real confusing real fast. But there's this guy, Elisha, plowing a field. And Elijah, walking by, takes off his mantle, his outer garment, and he throws it over Elisha's shoulders. Man, say that five times real fast. He throws it over Elisha's shoulders as a symbol of my mantle is now yours. You are taking up my role and my position. Elisha, you are the next great prophet. 
and Elisha is plowing a field. And Elisha says to Elijah, let me go say goodbye to my family. And Elijah allows it. And then Elisha comes back, and he burns the plow, and he sacrifices the oxen that he was using to plow, and then he follows Elijah and learns from Elijah. But he's allowed to go and say goodbye to his family first. The most important prophet in the history of God's people is calling an apprentice, and the matter is not so urgent that the apprentice can't go say goodbye to his family. But when someone asks Jesus the exact same question that Elisha asked Elijah, Jesus says, no. Once you've put your hand to the plow, once you're following me, once you're with me, that is it. There's no going back. This is urgent. Following Jesus takes the priority over the family. Elsewhere, Jesus will say, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword and to set a father against a son and a mother against a daughter. Man, everybody who thinks Jesus just floated around and said nice things and was like, be kind to each other has never read the Bible. Never honestly wrestled with the words of Jesus. Because Jesus says some incredibly inflammatory things. And these three things that he's just said to these three people are some of the most inflammatory that he says. And they're some of the most arrogant, self-centered words if Jesus isn't exactly who he claims to be. Jesus is saying, being with me, following me, being my disciple is more important than absolutely anything in your life. Anything at all. Jesus is saying, if I'm not the priority of your life, you have no part of me. Reckon with that. Let's sit with that. Let's wrestle with that. In a world and a Christian culture that has allowed our faith to be this add-on, tack-on thing that we put on the side. In an evangelical or Christian culture that says, yeah, this is something that I do. It's a, it's a part of me, but it's not all of me. Jesus is saying, no, I want all of you or none of you. Let's reckon with that. There is so much grace. There is so much forgiveness to be had. There is so much acceptance that Jesus gives. And there is so much that Jesus walks with us through when we are not faithful to him. But at the heart of the call, at the foundation of the call of Jesus, is I want all of you. Every bit of you. And if we haven't reckoned with that, we haven't really reckoned with Jesus. If we haven't asked what it means for Jesus truly to be the center of my life, the priority over everything else, if we have not really reckoned with and wrestled with what it means for Jesus to set my agenda, for Jesus to order my steps, for Jesus to be the heart and the core of my identity, then we haven't really wrestled with Jesus. We've been playing games at religion. 
But Jesus comes to us and says, I want to be right at the center of who you are. I need to be at the core. This is why the Apostle Paul in Romans will say that God predestined us to be followers of Jesus to be conformed to the image of his Son. To be made like Jesus in every way. So that as I walk my life, it is as though Jesus were walking in my shoes. As though Jesus were wearing my skin. As though he were speaking with my voice. The hard center of Christian faith is giving Jesus everything that I am and then being molded to look like him in every way. That's the hard center of Christian faith. Which means that I lay everything down before him and I allow him to dictate everything about my life. I let him truly be my king and my Lord, my master and my elder brother who orders my steps, who sets the agenda for my life and who tells me how to use everything God has given me. So that everything that I am and everything I have is at the disposal of Jesus. Every decision I make is first filtered through the question, what would Jesus have me do? So that every step I take is filtered through the question, what would Jesus have me do? Where would he step? How would he give? How would he love in this moment? Would he confront? Would he challenge? Would he embrace? How would he use my income if it were fully at his disposal? How would he shepherd these children that God has entrusted to me? How would he engage in my friendships? Jesus as the center is the core of Christian faith. Opening our hands, giving up control, and allowing him to order our steps is exactly what he's called us to. And this is the hard way of Jesus. It is the beautiful, fruitful, joy-filled, difficult way of Jesus. And this is why at the beginning of chapter 10 here, Jesus stops and he says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and he sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. He told them, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now you notice in those three interactions Jesus had, we didn't get the response of the people Jesus was talking to. We don't actually know if they said, all right, Lord, I'm with you. Or if they said, oh, that's too much. We assume that they didn't follow him. If you've ever read this text before or heard it preached, you've probably assumed they didn't follow him. And I think people get that from what Jesus says about the workers being few. But I think there's a reason this is left open-ended. 
I think there's a reason we don't read the response. Just as in the parable of the prodigal son, we don't hear how the oldest son responds at the end of the parable. Because we're supposed to fill in that answer. I think here, Luke is doing the same thing. We don't get the response of these would-be disciples. Because it's up to us to answer. To you and me, Jesus has said, foxes have holes. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. If you follow me, you're not guaranteed comfort. To us, Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. You come and follow me. To us, Jesus says, the one who turns away after they've put their hand on the plow isn't worthy of me. And it's up to us to supply the answer. Because the workers are few. When the hard call and the radical call of Jesus is put out there, the workers are few. Will we be among them? Will we be among the 72 that get sent out? Will we be among the ones who trade our lives for following Jesus, who allow him to define us to our core? Will we be among the ones who allow Jesus to order our steps, who put him at the center of our lives and make him the priority? Will we be the ones who understand that we will live far better in this world and we will be far better human beings, far better lovers of our neighbors, far better at pursuing justice, far better at living the life God has for us if Jesus is at the very core of who we are? Will we be the ones who get that? Will we be the ones who have wrestled with the hard call of Jesus and understood that if we choose this way of life, it may be difficult, it may mean losing our comfort, but it will be the life that God has created us for, the very reason God crafted us in the first place? Will we be the ones who say to God, yes, Holy Spirit, yes, I am on this mission. I am on this journey. I am with you, Jesus, no matter what it means for my life. No matter what it means for my finances. No matter what it means for my family. No matter what it means, I'm with you, Jesus. 100%. Or will we be the ones who, after we put our hand to the plow, look back and pine for the past? Will we be the ones who when we realize Jesus is calling us to sleep in the dirt next to him, go, I'd rather a bed, thank you very much. Will we be the ones when some obligation arises that would call us away from Jesus? Say, I'm sorry, but I gotta handle this thing. Will we be the ones who compromise when resistance comes? Will we be the ones who fall apart when our faith in Jesus is questioned or challenged, or when the values that we inherit because we're followers of Jesus are challenged in the world, will we be the ones who fall away? Are we 100% in on this thing? Because if we're 100% in, Jesus has promised that he would never leave and never forsake us. If we're 100% in with Jesus, he has promised us his Holy Spirit to live within us and to make us alive and to make us new and to redeem all the things of our lives. When we're 100% in with Jesus, he has promised us joy unspeakable regardless of the external circumstances of our life. 
When we're 100% in with Jesus, regardless of the cost, Jesus has promised us it will be worth it. All along the way and in the end. Will we lay it all down for Jesus? Will we let him be the core, the center of our lives? Are we 100% in with him today? I want you to take a moment, just ponder that question. Wrestle with that call of Jesus, the radical call to lay it all down and in turn to receive his promises, but most importantly, his presence with us all along the way. Lord Jesus, I confess this morning that my heart is all too often tempted away from you. That all too often there are areas of my life that I want to hide from you. That there are things I want to maintain control of and not give over into your good hand. Jesus, all too often in my life, I am not 100% behind you, with you, following you. All too often in my life, my eyes are turned away to other things. And I allow all of the other stuff in my life to crowd you out and to become the priority. All too often in my life, I think if I wrestle control back and I hold on to control, I can make the life better than you can. Holy Spirit, I battle with you. I fight with you. I wrestle with you. Just as Jacob wrestled with God, I try and hold my own. Lord, do whatever it takes to get my attention. If like Jacob, it means putting my hip out of socket, Holy Spirit, would you get my attention? Would you rest control and show me the life that you have laid out for me? Jesus, would you be the center? of everything I am and everything I long to be. And Jesus, would everything in my life be ordered and arranged to help me be conformed to your image, to become like you for the good of my family and my friends and my neighbors and my world? Jesus, you are all in all. You are king and sovereign over everything. You are my faithful elder brother. Holy Spirit, would you work in me to lay everything at his feet? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.